Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. We approached it like we were never going to be invited back. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Ed Nairing. Ed has been a fixture of the Iowa City music scene since the early 80s. Some of his bands have included Red Throb, The Day Glow Bomber Boys, Lowsom Rodders, The Rough Housers, and Hot. Ed is one of my absolute favorite people to talk with and learn from. I'm honored that he joined me on the podcast. Our conversation talks about Ed's journey as a musician and performer. Ed describes how his first encounter with a Devo record made him physically ill and yet remains one of his favorite records. Ed's approach to his life and his craft is a continued examination and application of his principles. Our conversation spans Ed's early love of rock and roll, punk rock mayhem, to what he learned from studying Zen Buddhism and how he made music his meditation, the latter of which is documented in the movie Music of the Moment. Ed is careful to separate a dedication to craft from one's pursuit of being famous. We discussed Ed's approach to practice and rehearsal, why exploring details and communicating is imperative when collaborating, and Ed talks about his philosophy to craft as an approach to, quote, sort yourself out, and the importance of separating your onstage persona from who you are in real life. As Ed says in our interview, quote, it's hard to be that honest with yourself. Thanks to Ed for joining me, and thank you for checking out this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for uh, joining me on the podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here. I uh, just want to get started with, uh, if you don't mind uh, telling me and the listeners just a little bit about yourself. Um, I guess mainly a musician. Uh, starting in the late 70s, early 80s is uh, you know, when I actually started doing it for real uh, as a punk rock musician. And then... You know, as I got older, doing other things, blues and rockabilly, eventually doing free improvisation. Yeah, so you've you've had bands that have been on all different different types of, of music, right? You said punk to start with, uh, Los Marauders, right, which would be probably in the in the rockabilly vein, right. mm-hmm. uh, Roughhousers, uh, yeah. and how would you describe Roughhousers to folks? It was a- House rock and blues band, and you know, I all the members in the band had at least connections with being punk musicians, or or you know, were surrounded by that world one way or another. So it was done with that kind of uh, edge. Yeah, yeah, because like also, especially with Los Marauders too, there was definitely a uh, almost a punk ethos to right. to what was going on. Yeah. And then uh, another band that you, you were in was Hot, which yeah. was a, a, a different flavor. But uh, what was the inspiration for Hot? Um, it was something that kind of evolved. Uh, because it, I, it was, in my opinion, it was, I, at least from my point of view, and the, and the other band members saw it less like I did. Um, it was a more of an experiment. Um, it was a cartoonish approach. And I tried to keep that a little bit under my hat, you know, that I was wanting to see what kind of reaction I would get from people if I approached it in the manner that I did, which was a kind of outrageous characters. We all took on a character name. I took on those personalities. And then what I wanted to do is kind of play out 
the the way rock and roll bands tend to evolve and play that out quickly, relatively quickly, and see how an audience reacts. You know, first of all, how do they react when you're outrageous characters? Because the truth matter is, rock and roll is all about outrageous characters, and some people try to you know some people hate kiss because it's outrageous characters you know but all rock and roll musicians are outrageous characters it's just a matter of whether your outfit is uh you know how ridiculous your outfit is really (laughs) and sometimes even people who who they consider not to be outrageous characters are still dressed like outrageous characters at any rate i just wanted to kind of i wanted to i wanted to really make that I wanted to push people's buttons and see if they could really identify that they were lying to themselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, uh, you know, I've, I attended a, a number of hot shows and they were, they were a ton of fun and great, great music. Was I uh, just honest question was, was, was I not aware of something else that might've been going on? Oh no, we wanted it to be fun. It wanted to be stupid fun. And we yeah. also, you know, we we wanted it especially i guess i should say i wanted it at the very beginning to start off but just being rock solid ass kicking rock and roll that was a lot of fun because you got i had to hook everyone in first right get everyone hooked in and then start uh doing things that weren't in the character that they were expecting you know so to start playing slower songs eventually a ballad uh to really start cheesing up the the performance and seeing at what point do do certain people in the audience go okay that's too much or uh is this okay is it okay for someone to be like this on stage you know start questioning what we're doing and then maybe at the same time questioning what they think is you know real because that's that's really what I saw. What is when it comes to entertainment, the idea that something is real, right, is right. kind of silly. Yeah, you know? yeah. Even even reality TV, right? As we right, yeah. as we yeah. we tear back the veneer and see how much it's it's scripted or how much it's right. an experiment to see how how the 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 actors or characters react to situations. Sure. Yeah. So uh, you have uh, one of the things I just absolutely appreciate about you is uh very uh uh thoughtful positions on 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 music or there's a principle that you're you're trying to carry through um when you so backing up maybe to the punk days uh was there a band before red throb that you were in oh yeah yeah i see uh my first band was a band called the problems and i was about 13 years old (laughs) And I was the oldest member of that band. Uh, so we, we started around 1979. And that was, uh, you know, in a small town in Iowa. So there was no place that we were going to play. But it was where I taught myself how to have a band, how to, ha- how to practice with a band. Um, and, and I did that. I had no one to explain to me how to do it. So the way I wound up doing it in that band and the way I did it all my life was how I developed it at that age, you know, um, which was basically, you know, we, we always were set up like we were playing a show. You know, once we learned songs, then we run through songs like we were doing a show. You know, it was, um, you know, when I first moved to Iowa City and started experiencing other bands and how they practice, I was like, this is all wrong. <laughs> you know, so everyone is so lazy and um, they wasted so much time and uh, they were, well, I don't know what they were preparing themselves for because they were, all they were doing is half-assed learning songs. They didn't have any, they weren't prepared at all for getting on stage and performing it. Um, so yeah, so way, way back to when I was really young. But by the time I was 16, I was playing shows with my second band, which was called The Preachers. What style of music uh, were the preachers? Well, it was, uh, we were trying to be a punk band. um, And I know that years later, people thought of us more as like a garage band. um, Because I think a lot of it had to do with the limitations of equipment and not 
you know, I, I just using the distortion on the amplifier uh, because I didn't know, even know there was distortion pedals, you know? Um, and so I didn't have the same crunch as yeah. typical punk stuff, you know? Um, but yeah, you know, we, what we were trying to do is be a punk band. So how, what was your model for, for punk bands and kind of the background, what I'm interested in, as you mentioned, small town, Iowa, mm -hmm. we're talking late seventies, early eighties. It's not like, internet today where you can just do searches or you can you know easily see music from around the world where where were your influences coming from um i first learned about well i should the first time i ever heard punk rock was on the radio when i was in the car with my parents and you know one of the djs was as a joke was like this is what they're doing this is what's going on in england uh you know totally missing the ramones and stuff and all that's been going on New York, but anyway, that was the first I ever heard it, and and I was pretty young because I was probably seventy six or so, and I would have been like ten, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and to me, it sounded like total gobbledygook. I didn't, I couldn't even find a beat in it, you know. Just you know, today it seems so tame, but at that time, disco was king, and right uh, beats were huge, and. It just sounded like distorted mess of stuff. And so I, I just had no interest. But um, it was through Skateboarding Magazine, because I was a skateboarding kid, that um, was touching on elements of punk rock in like record reviews and stuff. And I was reading these reviews about bands that were located in California, but aren't, weren't touring really. And being really curious, like, what is this all about? And they were using words like, uh, like at that time, a word like new wave has no way you could even look up what it meant. You know, it wasn't right. a commonly, it wasn't, it was not on the radio, it wasn't a commonly used phrase. And so just reading reviews that were coming from the coast, explaining what was going on there, being stuck in the Midwest and not knowing that, not having any idea what they were talking about, trying to sort it out. I think it was that initial curiosity, you know, that started hooking me. Um, and then the first thing that I banned in that vein that I actually heard other than the Sex Pistols on the radio was Devo, uh, their second record, which came out in 1978. And I heard that totally uh, without any warning. You know, I'd never heard anything <laughs> like it. And when I put it in my parent, my mom, I requested it. I asked her if she, if she was to go into a record store when she went to the city as she saw a record by this band, she replied. And she did, which was odd because she never bought much of anything for me. Um, so I, I got this record and I put it down on the record table of record player. I put the needle on it and it was this, it was so, so alien from anything that I'd heard before. And I think we've talked about this before. I mean, I, I thought I was going to throw up. That's how alien it was to me. <laughs> but I could not wrap my mind around what was going on. It didn't make any sense. I couldn't understand the motivation. I didn't know anything. It just was so different, otherworldly, and and there was something about that. I had to, I had to stop listening to it for a while and just kind of walk around stunned. But I came back to it. I put the needle back on and I listened to it. I listened to the whole thing, and I think that that was a defining moment in who I w became as a person. Because this is, and I found this experience. Uh, People my age who are involved with that sort of thing is something that we all experienced to a certain degree. There was something in that world of music that was unlike anything we'd experienced before. And some people experienced that and they walked away, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. And some people experienced that and were curious and they opened the door and they walked in. And what is it that's different between those two types of people, I'm not exactly sure, but that seemed to define who we all were as a group of people interested in that sort of music, you know. So how was, after you, after you listened to the Devo album, after you regrouped, mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> gathered yourself, uh, how did you feel about the record after that? I still think it's, you know, as far as like entertaining, entertainment and that sort of thing, I, I think it's, it's one of my favorite records, still is. <laughs> right on. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned skateboarding too. So I, I grew up in, Rockford, Illinois. So a little bit bigger population and some connection to Chicago. But I remember as a kid, my music was really limited to what was on the radio, which there, there weren't, you know, there weren't alternative radio stations uh, really back then. And we didn't have a college nearby. 
So I had my dad's old records that right. I would just plow through, but that was like, he was really into um, old country. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, like Johnny Cash was probably one of his favorite artists. So there was sure. a lot of crossover there, right? But not just country, a little bit of rock and roll. And then British, uh, like British New Wave. And so uh, when I was a kid, those were all all the same to me in a way, because <laughs> that's what I had access to. So that's fine. But it was really the the generosity of the freestyle bike crowd and the skateboarders that mm-hmm. I would hang out with where they're, that's how we would get new music. Somebody's mom would take them into Chicago, go to a record store, and we'd pull money together. And whoever, whoever went, they got to keep the original, but uh, right. they, would, they would make some uh, tapes or mixtapes for us. And that was until may, maybe I was a little bit older, my parents got cable and then like late night, MT, you would see some bizarre stuff really late right. night on MTV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or uh, <laughs> what was it? Night Flight. Oh, uh, yes. USA. Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing a document. I should go back and figure out what it was. But there was a documentary, I think it was like on the DC punk scene. And it was mm-hmm. the first time that I ro- really saw like mosh pits and right, right. Uh, people explain and I, it was something I couldn't turn away from. I had no idea really what was going on, but right, right, yeah. Well, see, there you go. You know, yeah, you couldn't turn away from it. There, right, it was a, it was like a maybe more like a car wreck. This is fascinating, right, right. but yeah, yeah. I was saying, me, like, uh, I saw L.A. bands, L.A. punk bands, hardcore bands on Night Flight on a show called New Wave Theater, and um, and some of those bands are so extreme. And the songs were so short, you know, and you had no uh, preparation, you know. It'd be like, uh, you know, here's so-and-so, and there's like 30-second blast of, like, total insanity, and it was <laughs> over, and he was like, what was that? You know, yeah. <laughs> just trying to figure, you know, and that was, for me, that was before having a uh, video record, you know. Right, yeah. So I couldn't even go back and watch it, you know. I was just like, I'm, I, I have to we pay a lot of attention. I'd really focus on the shows and I'd figure out what are they doing? You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, one, so you got the, you got the, your mom got you the Devo record and yeah. then did that send you down a path where you're exploring others or like, I don't going to libraries to try to find records, going to record stores. Yeah. Well, yeah. For me, the, the, I didn't know anything about a library music uh our our hometown library was nothing but pulp novels you know that's all right um it and i didn't know anything about independent record stores either um so we first it was just me and eventually my brothers started getting interested too he was three years younger than me but uh we would go to when we went to the city with my parents we would go to the record stores we'd literally go through every single record in the store. We'd go start at A and we'd go through every record till we got to Z. And we would generally wind up with one to three records to choose from. We could tell from looking at them that they were something different, you know? And we didn't know anything about what they sounded like. Uh, we could, every record was a gamble, you know? Right, right. We'd lay down our hard earned money on something and hope that we did good, you know? But that's how I found out, you know, that's how I. I bought Dead Kennedys, Totally Blind, um, Plasmatics, uh, even the Sex Pistols. I, uh, other than that, one time on the radio, I didn't know anything else about about them. Uh, Gang of Four, The Clash, The Specials, all these bands are bands that I'd never, I didn't know anything about it until I bought the record, you know. And uh, and I only bought the record because I'm looking at the cover and thinking that's got to be a punk record, you know. So it sounds like you took your you you took music seriously when you were in the band. Like you you said, coming to Iowa City, uh, seeing bands rehearse. Uh, but did you as you were as your bands were evolving? When did you have more of a vision of like what you wanted the band to do, or was there a vision? I mean, I always had a vision, even when I was really young. Um, and I was, but I didn't always have the skill or the musicians to do the vision that I it was in my head you know so I was always thinking about boy it'd be great if I could combine this sound with that sound and do it this way live but I was dealing with especially in my hometown I was 
the guys I was dealing with, they weren't even musicians. They were just guys who didn't have any friends. And, and I mean, I, literally, I, that band, that, the first band I played out with, I, I saved up my money and bought all of the instruments. And then I approached other people who didn't play instruments and said, hey, you want to be in a band? And then I taught them how to play their instruments so that I could have musicians for my own band. You know, I'm starting from literally square <laughs> yeah. one. So I didn't have the people, I, I, people could barely play the instruments, let alone, you know, go for some sort of vision. Although it was always in my head of what I wanted to do. And I would try, I worked, that's I think a key thing. I worked really, really, really hard to try to make my vision work, even when I didn't have all the pieces to make it work. Uh, and then eventually as I uh, got more exposure and people liked what I was doing, I was able to, I had a larger pool of musicians to draw from and I could get closer and closer to what I was envisioning. I wanted a band to be. Uh, so by the time I, I started up Red Throb in about 1986, I was, I was able to, you know, be happy with what I was doing, you know, I, that I, I felt like I was doing what was in my head. I don't know if that makes sense. But. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit, too, about your, your practice, uh, your approach to practice. It, sound, it sounds like you, I'm, I'm, maybe, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but it, sometimes it sounds like you're, you practice like you, you know, maybe from sports, you practice like you play, right? That you're actually. Yeah. So, you know, the practice would be broken up. And first part of the practice was always learning songs, you know, um, and we always wrote our own songs because literally we did not have the skill to play anyone else's, you know, um, is, is it just more skill to listening to something and trying to reproduce that when you don't even know what, right. what they're doing. Uh, when, you, when we would write our own stuff, we would write it within our ability. You know, we had no other way to do that, to do it. So, so it was always writing our own songs, learning those songs, getting those songs down, and then putting them in a list, you know, a, like a set list, what, what goes good together. You know, and we were thinking about this, even in that very first band that I was in, which never played live, we were always thinking about those things. You know, um, what, what song do you start with? And, and this, we came up with our own ideas of how you would start a show uh, based on just watching things on TV and coming up with our own ideas because there was no one else to teach us. You know, uh, you know on our own, we came up with ideas like you want a strong song to begin with. You know, you don't want your killer song to start off with. You want a, a song that is not great, but good. It gets people's interest. People come forward, you know, and then you hit them with something hard on the second song, you know, um, and then you finish strong, you know, and you finish before they want it to be done. You know, it always killed me watching bands who just played forever until people were just, you know, walking out. <laughs> you know, it's like, man, what do you, what's, you know, they're never going to want to come back, you know, you got to, you got to stop before they want it to end, you know, because then you want to come back. You know? But anyway, all those things we learned on our own in that first uh, learning how to practice sort of thing, you know, and so doing the set uh, in that manner. And uh, with your, your other bands too, would you, would you lay out the practice space like you would be on stage? Like here's singers going to be here, always, guitars yeah. here, drums here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes. Uh, I can't think of a time where I didn't approach it that way. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it, in practice, I have to be detailed, detail oriented. Um, I think that that there's so many young, it's not even young. There's musicians who are my age and older who still approach practicing in a very lazy way. They're not covering details. They're not discussing amongst themselves what each other is thinking. Um, and that's how things fall apart because people start getting different ideas of what it is that they're doing until they get to the point where they no longer see eye to eye. Um, always got to be talking about it and always working on every single detail. Any detail that you can come up with, any detail that pops in your mind is worth talking about, you know, um, sorting those things out. You really have to have it sorted out. Right on. And I, I know you take your, your craft seriously. Can you 
Uh, can you walk me through some kind of switching gears? Cause another role you've had, you've been a drum instructor, drum teacher, right? How did, how did you get to the level one that, uh, learning the drums, but if you can walk me through like learning the drums and then what it meant to be a teacher or e- even what you've learned teaching other students how to play an instrument. Sure. Yeah. Well, I never, I was just an adequate drummer for a long time, but when I got to the point where I was going to, I had an idea of playing freely improvised music. Once again, I didn't know anything about other people doing that. I, <laughs> Uh, I thought it was my own idea. Of course, I was completely wrong, but uh, I still approached it in a, in, from my own point of view. And and, um, and I felt that if I was going to improvise, I had to have a language to do that with. I had to really, I had to be able to express myself with music in, in almost as detailed and in some ways more detailed way than I do verbally. So uh, really, really being able to play very well. And that, once again, was practicing with intense focus and learning technique, learning how, technique is important and learning how to, being able, I should say, to do whatever comes to mind. Um, so that period of time of learning how to play that instrument was instrumental in me being able to teach because um, I really took things apart and looked at the mechanisms you know, the muscular mechanisms of, of playing and then the brain muscle connections, um, muscle memory, and all of those things all fit together to be able to play really well. And when I, and I learned all of that once again on my own, not from anybody else. And so I think I was good at teaching because that I had to make conscious efforts to understand all of that stuff. How, um, so from a drumming perspective, I'll even just actually just start there. Why, why drums? Why was it the, the drums that you went really deep on? I, drums, the reason I continued on, I became serious with drums is because it was, it was what I started out with in the school band. Because in our small town, there was no electric guitar and there was no bass. Um, only, only instrument that had anything to do with rock and roll was drums. So, and on top of that, I was a Beatles fan from the time when I was a little, little kid and Ringo was my favorite Beatle. So that was a natural, a natural thing. So, but I, that's all I had any real, uh, training on the training I got from, from school. Um, and unfortunately, none of my band directors were drummers. They were just, you know, walk me through the books as best they could. So right. I, I, you know, I could play basically, but no one taught me any details and stuff. So when I, you know, I just continued on with the drums. But there's something about drummers. There's no doubt about it. We've got short attention spans. We tend to be <laughs> more volatile. Um, you know, the drummers are always the troublemakers, right? Uh, it's just my personality. What was it like to be in uh, hot with a, a former student as as your drummer? You know, working with hot was so much easier than my other bands because the bass player and the drummer were both former drum students of mine. And uh, I should say the second bass player. Yeah. And they were used to doing what I told them to do. <laughs> <laughs> Made it a lot easier. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, uh, being in a band with me can be difficult if you have some ideas of your own because uh, I kind of run it like a dictatorship. I'm always interested in other people's... A benevolent dictatorship. Yeah, yeah. I'm always interested in other people's ideas. Sometimes other people have great ideas, but sometimes they don't. And when they don't, it's my way. You know, it's going to go my way. Um, it's my band. Now, if yeah. I was playing in someone else's band... I'm going to do what they say. That's the rules, you know? So whose band was Los Marauders? It's a good question. (laughs) Um, I was the guy who directed things and uh, kind of set the tone for what the band would be. Uh, My brother was the guy who wrote the songs and was the front man. Um, but 
it wouldn't have happened if I wouldn't have been directing these. Right on. Thank you. Yeah. And, th- and those, those shows, those shows were, there was so much high energy there. And that's, I was quick because, uh, uh jeff as, as, as nobody was so bombastic right it was yeah. i mean he just drew drew so much attention and still strong musicianship but everything was else was stripped down right it was a stand-up bass mm-hmm. a, a snare drum that your kit was a yeah, single snare drum <laughs> yep yeah. and yeah, and, and one uh, guitar and one guitar and one and that but that guitar player chris thompson whose uh stage name was johnny Aztec, and he was a phenomenal guitar player and um and also a super entertaining human being and, uh, and high energy. I mean, th- th- that's the, one of the only bands that just was automatic that I was in. Sometimes you're in a band that it just works. It just clicks and there's, you don't have to do much of anything. It just happens. And that was, that was one of those bands. You know? That was the easiest band. And uh, back in the day, Los Marauders would get in a little bit of trouble in Iowa City. <laughs> yeah i guess or, or I mean, was that something you might play up like kind of and this might be right i always there was a little bit of a professional wrestling vibe coming from it like sure. once there's yeah, a heel was, uh, you really play up the 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 heel to just yeah. advance the story yeah yeah, yeah. We, I, that was very very uh conscious um when we did the battle of the bands and uh that you were a part of yeah we very conscious. In fact, we, right before we opened the door to walk in to the performance space, we we were in the alley, getting ready to open the back door to the to the space, and we talked about it. It's like, okay, on the other side of this door is going to be some of the other bands. We walk in this door, we're going to tear them apart like we were professional wrestlers verbally. We're going to we're going to attack them, <laughs> which is why, which is exactly what we did, you know. And I think that some of I think most of the other bands took it in good humor, you know. I think that maybe yeah. there were some people who <laughs> didn't, <laughs> but you know, if you're willing to work with this, it was all fun, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you guys expect to win? Uh, and so no, for background, no, no, there were six. There were six really strong bands, uh, mm-hmm. and it was day long performance. And the, the the two top bands would come back for like a shootout performance. Right? Yeah. No, we didn't expect. No. <laughs> I mean, the whole gist of what we we operated under a couple of different rules. One was that we never would never ever expected to ever be invited back a second time to play anywhere. Um, and that we were going to put it all on the line at every single performance um, and the, with the intention of, of getting that audience worked up. And what the audience loved about Los Marauders is there was no controlling us because we could care less whether we came back and played again. You know, it was all at one show, right? right. Everything was going to lay down in that one show and, uh, and we were going to, be honest about what we saw in the audience. We were going to uh, call out people whom, you know, once we started getting popular, people would show up to their shows who didn't even like us, but it was the thing to do. It was the thing was to come see us. And we'd point those people out. We would, you know, we, we were pretty vicious uh, in our so-called honesty, you know. Well, and you know, one of my favorite posters or a theme that was on some of the Los Marauders posters was uh, the, the warning, uh, no fuckos allowed, was <laughs> right. on, on your publicity poster. Right, right. And that was a, that was a Chris Thompson, Johnny Estac thing, you know. He would just, he had these phrases, you know. He would just, they'd just pop out of his mouth and be like, oh, that's perfect. That's like, that is like the summing up everything in, in one phrase. He did that all the time, you know. Um, yeah. And that, that's a pretty good philosophy that I think <laughs> stays true. Well, now. you know, the tr- it's all entertaining and it was all, it all worked very well, but it is not a life strategy. You know, what I mean? <laughs> um, it does not work to, to try to live that way in real life. And that's the thing I learned most from Lois Marauders about was uh, eventually when the records came out and we, we started getting some fan mail and stuff. And I started realizing that people were expecting me to be the person that I was on stage. And that's when I realized that I was a character on stage. 
and that 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 character is not who I really am. And and I was lucky enough to make a distinction and to put a wall between who I was on stage and who I was as a person. I confuse those two things. Um, but I do think there's a certain lack of responsibility in portraying yourself like that on stage at the, now at my age, you know. Um, and it's something that young people are going to do. They're always going to be pushing the limits and they're always going to be, you know, I don't know. But it's not a successful strategy to having a happy life. I can guarantee you that. So uh, after you realized that, then was it every other band since then that you were doing, um, th- that you're conscious that this is a character, this is a stage performance? Yes. Yes. I was always aware that I was a character after that always aware that I was a character and very consciously knew that when I was on stage, I was supposed to act bigger than life. You know, I was supposed to act like I was more important than anyone else. But as soon, and I mean, as soon as I stepped down off that stage immediately, then that had to change. Um, then everybody in the audience is equal and um, everyone gets treated with respect. Have you ever seen the comedian Neil Hamburger? I've heard that name a lot, but I don't think I've actually ever seen it. And he's, he's actually performed in uh, Iowa City at the Mill and yeah. went to see him a few years ago. And his comedy is like, uh, as Neil Hamburger, it's almost like a, an accelerated version of Don Rickles, right? It's, it's <laughs> humor, it's, it's vicious, it's, right. um, and seems very mean-spirited. Right. And as soon as he was off stage, I was chatting with him and, uh, and then Greg, who is the real, he's, he's such a kind person. And Mm -hmm. I believe he grew up in Australia and asked him why he was performing in Iowa city. And he said, he loves the mill. He said, this room, it's the way it's, it's just like, it puts its arms around you and gives you a big hug. And it was, it was really interesting just hearing those contrasts and, uh, but yeah, also clearly, it, just like you said, as soon as he was off stage, even though he was still in the garb, it, he was a different person. Right. Yeah. Yep. I think that's really important uh, to keep your sanity. If you confuse the two, it's only going to end in trouble. Uh, just, there's no two ways about it. You cannot be that character in real life. Uh, what what is being asked of you as an entertainer on that stage is not the same thing that's being asked of you as a human being living amongst everyone else. And you have to, you have to distinguish between those two things. Otherwise you wind up treating other people poorly. You're a poor example of a human being. I want to ask you a little bit about, uh, or just check first. Are you, you, uh, all right. Talking about music of the moment. Sure. Yeah, Cause I'm. Uh, I'm because I, I was not in Iowa City at the time. Didn't get to experience what was going on. But that's when you really started exploring improvisation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, eventually, you know, I got to the point where I, I, I stopped playing entertaining type music for a while because um, the contradictions got to be too much for me, and. Um, and I did feel it was irresponsible to continue on doing what I was doing. So I took a break from a long time for a long time. And then um, I studied Zen Buddhism for a number of years with a Japanese Zen priest. And it was because of him that really that I started doing improvisation because eventually he told me, you know, that it was that I, I was ready to move on. And, uh, and I was like, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> and, he, and he very specifically told me, make music your meditation. And, um, and it took me a long time just to figure out how I would do that. You know, how, how could I possibly make music my meditation? And that, that there was a good, a period of a good, no, couple, at, least, at least two, maybe three years of just thinking about how I, how am I possibly do that? And thinking it out thoroughly, and um, and and the type of meditation we did was uh, shikantaza, which was to simply let your thoughts go. There was no focusing on anything. 
thought arises, let it go, thought arises, let it go. That's all there is to it. How do you play music that way is, is to play without thinking. And how can you play without thinking? It's gotta be, you gotta, you gotta be able to just move. There has to be a connection between how you feel and how you move with the thought part taken out, you know? And learning how to play like that was, you know, it required that deep level of practice and um, getting so comfortable that I would find myself playing and not thinking, you know? Um, and then when I could play without thinking, that's when I knew I could now start expressing who I am by playing. And so it took a long time for me to develop that and to play in that way. Um, and I did that without talking to anyone else about it other than my wife. And once I felt ready, then I started talking with other people and I thought that I had something completely new that I was doing and found that this has been going on for a long time and that there's even people in town who are doing it. Uh, and they, we all had a, maybe a slightly different approach. I think most people let thought influence them more, but, um, but everyone was willing to at least approach it how I would explain it to be as free as possible. So, yeah. So, and at the time it's kind of become hip now, you know, improvisation, some people call it noise. And I think those are two different things myself, but, um, at any rate, that hard to listen to sound of improvisation, free improvisation is, uh, was something that you couldn't perform in any regular space back then. Uh, so we, I, and I'd done this before with rock and roll, I had shows in my basement, but with the improvisation, I did it again. But this time I really did something different with that space and that I, I knew that the, 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 can't really call it music, but the improvisation was going to be hard to listen to for people. It was going to be new to a lot of people and that the space needed to be so welcoming that the sounds they were going to hear were not going to be that threatening, you know? So I tried to create a really, really comfortable space, a very relaxing space where we played some really intense stuff. And, um, and, and a fella who was a filmmaker in Chicago had made a short film about me years earlier. And when he called to find out what I was up to and I explained this whole thing that I'm explaining to you, he thought that was worthy of another film. I got feature length film. And then uh, he, I can't, he shot footage for years um, and interviewed various people and, and, uh, and then he, he finished it 14 years after he started it. <laughs> so. And, and have you watched the whole, the finished product? I have. Yeah. And, and how do you, how do you feel about like, cause you said it was shot over years and then also your personal journey, like looking back even 14 years yeah. later, um, are there things that still change or, or hold true? I'm just kind of curious cause it seems like you have a trajectory of where you're, you're taking music. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to watch it, that film, because, um, you know, I still had a lot of sorting out to do from early on. I had a pretty good idea what I was doing, but I had a hard time being consistent, you know, and, um, and over, you know, it's only over time, I think, of doing that sort of thing that it just starts to become more and more natural. And so for me, watching, going back and watching it, I, I can see those points when I'm discussing it that I'm looking for the right words and not coming up with them very well. And in the performances, I, can, I know when the hesitations are happening. The typical person listening is not picking up on that, but I, I know oh, here, there's a point where I'm, I'm following my thoughts instead of playing free, you know. And um, so in that respect, it's hard to kind of watch. Um, but, you know, that's just how, you know, everyone's got to evolve, you know, and it's hard to look back on yourself when, um, when you didn't have things down as well as you thought you might have, you know, but 
you know, that's just how it goes. So uh, backing up for a while in Iowa City, you, you also had a haircutting salon, <laughs> King Stingray. Yeah. Yep. Uh, was that a business you created or did you, did you buy King Stingray? No, we created that completely. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was cool. You know, I got to meet yeah. all kinds of people. You know, you get one-on-one -on -one time with somebody. Yeah. You know, conversation. And um, so, yeah, fascinating people. Uh, because we were an interesting kind of place. We aren't a typical place. Uh, so we attracted interesting people. And being a college town, it was interesting people from around the world. Um, so meeting all kinds of interesting people and talking with them, that was the best thing about it. Um, the worst thing about it was that I was appealing to people's vanity, basically. <laughs> and, um, and that became a philosophical problem for me as well. You know, um, why, why have I put myself in a business where I am promoting vanity? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I just couldn't do it after a while again. Well, like when I, I, when I was an undergrad, I remember going to King Stingrays to get my hair cut because I heard it was this crazy place. And yeah. And when I, when you had cut my hair, I remember like having these fascinating conversations, usually about music and, uh, I think, th and that's why, that's why I went. And I still remember when somebody else would cut my hair. I'm like, oh, darn it. Because I was, <laughs> I was, I was going to debate Ed about this principle of punk right, music right. or something, right? I had, I thought I had a clever idea that I was going to spring on you and get your reaction. Right. Well, you know, King Singers is actually a place where I found out about Buddhism too. Um, I had a guy in my chair who was Japanese. We were talking philosophy and you know, all I had to go, all I had to talk about was my own personal philosophy. And he, what he was saying, what I was saying were jiving. And I was like, hey, man, so how did you come up with your philosophy? He's like, oh, that's just, it's just Buddhism. <laughs> and I didn't know anything about Buddhism at the time. And we became friends. And so he, he was the guy who kind of just started me off uh, in finding out about Buddhism. And I had, he, his type of Buddhism was, a, you know, had more ritual and stuff uh eventually i i, can't, I couldn't deal with the ritual I, I had to find like the one stripped down version and i was lucky that when i discovered that type of buddhism that an actual teacher from japan moved to iowa city who was from that very school of buddhism so you know sometimes things sometimes when you're doing what you know is right things just work <laughs> that is one one piece of advice that i am happy to impart yeah, I've heard, uh, I believe it was Joseph Campbell breaking down different, different philosophies or, or mythology, but said like when you're, when you're on your path, uh, hands suddenly appear to help you. Yeah, I, I don't know how, how much I can emphasize that. It's just something that is, I've experienced over and over and over again, that when you're, and sometimes it's not a matter of doing what you want to do. It's doing what you know is right, you know? So all through that period of doing hot, things just were a struggle because it was, I, it was an idea I wanted to play out, but it wasn't the right thing to do. Um, it just wasn't, it just, everything about it was work. It was lots and lots of work. Um, when I'm doing the thing, doing something and I know that it's right, everything just falls in my lap, you know? Um, but it's hard to do that. It's hard to be that honest with yourself because sometimes it means stopping doing things that you, for some reason, have convinced yourself that you want to do. Um, and you have to break those things down. You really have to break them down and find out, okay, this is something I want to do, but is it a good thing? Is it a right thing? You know? It's something a lot of artists don't yeah. want to do. <laughs> So, so what's keeping your interest these days? Uh, I just probably in the past four or five months started improvising again on my own. Um, after I stopped doing hot, I didn't do anything at all. Uh, anything creative or artistic. I didn't even want any ideas. Um, I just want to be free from that 
for a long time. And um, I, I got a snare drum for my birthday from my mom, from my parents. Yeah. Because uh, I, I actually enjoy the process of developing technique. You know, it's something that I felt would be good to, you know, keep the, uh, what do you call it? Um, keep the mind working. Guess, yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. Keep the Alzheimer's at bay, you know? Yeah. Um, Cause it requires focus, you know, you really have to pay attention to what you're doing. So, you know, it's just something I thought I would do as an exercise, but when, as soon as I got that snare drum, you know, I started improvising again and, and it, and it, and it struck me that, you know, when I was improvising, everything just worked. Everything always worked, you know, um, because it was like, it was the, my meditation, you know, and, um, so, yeah, so now, over the period of that five months, I've pieced together through Craigslist and online used drums. I've amassed this, like, very strange uh, drum set that I play standing up. And uh, now I've improvised pretty much every day back at it. But I've had zero interest in doing it with anybody. Well, I guess I might do it with somebody, but certainly not in front of anybody. And do you have a, a regular rhythm or routine? Is there like a certain time of day you do that? that or it's just when the mood strikes that you're going to go do yeah. it? Yeah. Yep. I, it, I have, I'm lucky that I have the freedom to schedule my day how I want. And so when, and I don't practice the time, like the, I don't put in the hours like I used to. I'm, you know, it took me, Oh, a couple months to get back, get my chops back, you know. Um, and, and I continue to work on getting better, but my chops were already pretty good. So um, I don't have to practice in the same intensity that I used to. Um, but it does require, whenever I do it, it requires focus. And sometimes you're not in a state of mind to put that kind of intensity into a focus and then you're just wasting your time if you're working on a technique. So it's, it's, there's sometimes uh, points during a day where it just like, it feels like, okay, I can pay attention right now and really focus. And uh, so it's whenever those times come up. You know? Cool. Uh, question for you on music too. Is there anything that you're doing as far as music discovery process or any genres that you're like studying the history of or anything yeah. that's keeping your interest? Hmm. Every once in a while, a young band will come around. I'd say maybe a couple times a year. Um, I, I'll run across something that I think is worth looking into. Sometimes, on rare occasions, something worse that I, you know, putting into my computer is like, okay, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to listen to this a fair amount. Um, as far as like new, something like totally different kind of genres, uh, I haven't really run across, I haven't, I haven't run across much that. One of, one of my struggles was, uh, you know, and I think as a, as a kid, especially, and when, you know, when I got to Iowa City and then, you know, there's multiple record stores, right? And there was college radio, right? There's so much new stuff. But then I found myself also just going deep into like, old music i was trying to who was influenced by who right and then i then i you know then all of a sudden i'm listening to really old like delta blues records right yeah. like trying to like, sure. and what i find where i'm at in my life right now is when i find time to listen to music i can't decide if i want to go dig backwards mm -hmm. or are there are there new acts that i'm interested in listening to and and Sometimes I just punt and I'm like, okay, here's a record that brings me joy. So I'm just going to throw that one on. But yeah, I think that's the way to do it, really, because it, that, it's just more natural that way. But um, yeah, you know, I, I think the, the thing that non creative people don't understand about creative people, everyone's creative, but I'm talking about people who make it their life. Uh, they, what they don't understand is the amount of time that you could say, that you put into things and some people might call it wasted, you know, wasted time that you put into learning about the history of what you're doing. 
Um, that's one thing I found with student teaching students is that they were always fascinated by the you know the level of understanding about the history of music that they would get from me. But it's not it's not just me. It's I think it's most musicians and any artist, whatever they're whatever it is that they do, they're consumed by it to the point where they want to know everything about it that they possibly can. And um, and that's what they learn about in their life. And, that, and, and the other people, all they see is them on stage or, you know, them playing in one manner or another. And they don't see all of that wasted time <laughs> that goes into knowing what came beforehand, just because you're fascinated in every possible way. And if that kind of fascination doesn't exist, then I don't think that you will do, the, do something like that for a very long period of time. Um, but I, I think that it, it is, um, creative people, in my opinion, do what they do because it is a process of sorting themselves out and, and you have to uncover every single little piece of what it is that you're doing to start to figure out where you fit into all, to the whole thing. And why do you fit in in that particular way? What is it about you that, that you fit in like this? And, and to do that, it requires a lot of time and effort. People get caught yeah. up in the, what they're doing on stage, the attention that they're getting. But that was not the initial reason why anyone started doing what they were doing. I guess some people just want to be famous. Right. That's totally different than wanting to be an artist or a musician. And, and I think everyone who takes it seriously starts out not knowing. They don't know why they're so interested. But the truth of the matter is, is if they're honest with themselves, what they find out in the end is that they're trying to sort themselves out. And because they can't do that verbally or through typical ways of thinking, they have to do it through a nonverbal expression and um, and the creative process, the actual process of writing songs or playing freely, that is the that is the process of sorting yourself out. The other part that comes along with it, sometimes that performance on stage in front of an audience, that is different. That is a different thing, and um, people get those things mixed up unfortunately and then they forget what their motivation is or they like i said because you never know what it is at the beginning you never really sort yourself out because you've lost that that pure track that you were on of sorting yourself out um uh how do you, i don't yeah. know how i got there. no no that we <laughs> it was just thinking about pursuits and the and the time that goes in right right and yeah. so and what i like because one of the you know, many things that we're trying to investigate on the podcast is how, how creatives approach their work. And, and I think for non-creatives, uh, one thing I've taken away from other disciplines, from theater, from video, from radio, is the amount of time uh, that goes into even, even a commercial, right? Which uh, is, not, is not done for the best reasons usually. <laughs> but, uh, but like you got to have it know it inside now. If you but a, thir a 30 second spot, right. That, that is done for T or a really good movie. You know, the amount of time that goes in for an hour and a half movie, it's insane. And, it's <laughs> and, and, you know, one of the, one of the things in, in design that we say is like great design is invisible. Right. And it's like, because it's, people aren't noticing errors right? and it's, right. but the amount of time and work that goes into that, I think is it's not for the timid. No, you are exactly right. And it will, it tends to sort itself out, right? So in any thing, music, art, whatever it is, um, there are people who get famous doing it, who are actually being manipulated by people who know what they're doing, right? <laughs> yeah. And then there are people who just know what they're doing and do it on their own. Right. So you're always going to have like the teen heartthrobs who uh, on stage are doing the right thing. Uh, vocally, they're doing the right thing, but they're not 
a person who's willing to just do what they say, you know, and just because they were willing to be, they just want to be famous. They'll do whatever it takes, you know? Right. Um, so there's always that. Um, but it does to do it. Well, you really, really have to put in the time and most people are completely unaware of the amount of time it takes and the level of detail that you need to attend to. Um, when it comes to, no, I'm talking about entertainment here. I'm talking yeah. about yep. in front of it. I'm talking about doing it for other people. That's different than improvisation. Right. Um, that sort of thing, you need to know, you need to be able to see how the audience sees it. And, the, and some people think, well, can't you just ask the audience? No, because the audience isn't informed. They don't know <laughs> what works and doesn't work. All they know is how they feel, right? And, um, and sometimes you could ask, you know, ask someone in the audience, did you like that? Sure, they liked it. Well, and then you think, well, they liked it. That's all we need to do. But it could be better, right? Um, did they say, that's the best thing I've ever seen in my life? If they didn't say that, then you still got work to do. <laughs> and you're not going to get the answers from the audience, you know? Right. You need to know your history. You need to know what's happened before. What was the best ever? Uh, what was the best in its time? What were these people doing? What is your reaction when you watch those people? You know, you need to break down every single little thing and figure out what works and doesn't work and what's going to work in your time period and what's not going to work in your time period. You know, right. what is the up and coming way of thinking about things? The, the, you know, I, I'm an old guy now. I'm not in touch with what young people are doing. I, I, I'm, I try, but you, know, there's no, you, you can't. There's every uh, creative subculture that comes along has a different frame of mind that they're dealing with, a different set of experiences, and they come up with a different way of viewing things. And it takes a long time just to even understand where they're coming from, you know. Uh, and once again, that's a long, you know, it could take a band like the Rolling Stones, and people, get, people pan them as like, well, they went along with every trend that came along. Well, yeah, they were keeping in touch with what the young people were doing uh, because they're entertainers, right? Right. They're not, they're no longer viewing what they do as art. I, yeah. I know that's going to start arguments, but that's just the yeah. truth. It's just the truth, <laughs> right? And if they're going to entertain and do it for their entire lives, they have to keep up with what is going on. They have to be able to see things from the point of view of young people and be able to adjust to the, the way they view something, what, what it is that they're attracted to. Uh, and they have to really understand that, you know? So you can pan them off as like, you know, just doing every new thing, but let's face it, you've seen all kinds of people tried to do the new thing and did it horribly, right. you know? Because they didn't understand what the new thing actually was. You know, you have to really put in your time and effort to, to be able to not just do it, but do it well. Speaking of Ethel Merman did a disco record, yeah. right? But how successful was that? Or the yeah, the the William Shatner uh, right. vocal records. Right, right. Uh, yeah, when we were talking about putting in time and craft again, the, one of the things that, uh, that still butcher the name, but it, Pablo Casals, uh, an old cellist, and he considered a master cellist uh, into his nineties, and he was asked about something, and he referred to practicing and somebody was befuddled and said you, that you still practice. And his response was, yeah, I believe I'm still making progress. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, in my world, the, the generally considered the greatest drummer is Buddy Rich and people who don't consider him the greatest drummer are people who don't know what they're talking about generally. Um, and Buddy Rich had this thing of saying that he never practiced. Right. And one time, I was working with a drummer and he said, you know, the great thing about Buddy Rich is he never practiced. And I looked at him and said, think about what you're saying. Look, watch Buddy Rich, listen to Buddy Rich and tell me he isn't practicing. <laughs> That's insane. You know, of course he practiced, you know, I mean, you, you cannot get to that level. Everyone, different people have different levels of intuitive ability, right? 
but you never get to that greatest level without practicing. The reason Buddy Rich said he didn't practice was to just make everyone, make every other drummer feel as if they were worthless. You know, it was a strategy. I mean, he, was, he, was, part he of was a ruthless entertainer, yeah. you know? And, you know, he developed a way of, of playing with, you know, that was like a, uh, people call it like the Buddy Rich left-handed roll or, you know, various things. He, he, did, he developed a way of playing and he never told anyone how he did it, you know? Um, basically taking older techniques and refining them in a way that no one else had really refined it before. And, um, and, but people had no idea how he could play so fast. It didn't even make sense to them. Um, but he was, that's not something he talked about. You know, he didn't talk about that because he didn't want people thinking this is humanly possible. You know, the way he made his money was he went out there and played and people were like, that's not even human. You know? Right. So yeah, of course he's going to create the mythology, you know? I don't practice. I don't know what you're talking about. No. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Any other advice that you have for people that are working to improve their craft, whatever that craft might be? Well, yeah. Cra the truth of the matter is that the craft is secondary. Um, I guess I should rephrase that. The goal is not the craft. The craft only lends itself to sorting out yourself. If you're not willing to accept that, then you are going to waste a lot of time. And you will think that you are doing the most important thing, but you are not. Um, if you are not doing it with the idea in mind that you are trying to discover something about yourself, you will try this and you will try that because it's never going to give you the satisfaction that you're looking for. Um, so you, you, you have to approach it with that state of mind. Not saying that you're ever going to get to the point of what you're looking for, but at least you know you are doing the right thing in, getting, in heading that direction. Uh, so many people waste can, they can waste an entire lifetime trying it this way and trying it that way and trying to find a way that seems to work for them. But this, the reason it's not working for them is because their, their motivation, they have, they have not understood their motivation. Um, so I think that that is the, the most important thing. It doesn't lead to being famous, right? right. Um, but you know, being famous is not what it's all cracked up to be. Well, I want to thank you so much for for the time today. This was was great to 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 chat, and uh, really appreciate your generosity with with both your time and and perspective. Oh, geez, it's nice that you asked me. I appreciate it.